0: Look at what I call the four stages of letting go. And this you actually won't find either in the Zen tradition or the Theravada tradition. It's kind of something I have kind of made up, so for you to see if it's suitable or not. And so what I'm looking at is often you hear this, let go. Let go. And so you sit there and you feel terrible and you tell yourself, let go, let go. And nothing happens. (laughs) And you think, well, what's this? Letting go about, you know. How does it work? And so I think it's interesting to explore what does it mean outside of these two words, let go. What does it mean? What would it mean for me to let go? What do I think it means? That also is a thing. What do I think it means? How do I look at it? How do I experience it? And personally, that's why I kind of, over time, uh, seeing that just saying to somebody, let go, doesn't work. And I had this friend many years ago And she used to come on uh, my uh, retreat, and uh, then she stopped coming. And then she came back again. I said, what happened? She said, you know, I went to the country where my great teacher was, and I revered that teacher for so many years, and I went to practice with him. I thought, ah, finally, you know, I'm going to awaken. You know, I'm close to the teacher. And then something happened between my friend and somebody else and she got so upset. So she goes to the great teacher and she's saying, I am in pain. I am upset. And the teacher says, let go. (laughs) But what was interesting was my friend's reaction. She thought it was so uncompassionate to tell her that because at that moment she could not, let it go in that way. And though she decided that the teacher was not compassionate, which means the practice did not work, so why do it? <laughs> and uh, personally, I would have seen that the, the, maybe the teacher did not have very good counseling skill. <laughs> maybe I had to work on that. So in a way, that's why now I have the, this idea of the four stages of letting go. And you have after, first stage, second stage during, third stage at the beginning, and last stage before. Let me explain. After is a stage, but each of these stage, I think, is a letting go. But it's a different kind each time of letting go. And so to see that often we have this very big bang uh, way of looking at letting go. And I think we have to look at it in more of its different aspects. So after, the letting go of after. After refers to when you go through the whole thing. You've had something happen, you're totally upset or whatever it is, you're totally lost in the story, whatever it is, like all things, it's impermanent, so after a day or a week or whatever long it takes, suddenly you're not in it anymore, so you are after, and you look and you think, hmm, I was lost, wasn't I? Ooh, I really was lost in it, wasn't I? And to me, this is already letting go. Because instead of continuing, I was right, etc., etc., and then continuing with the amplifying, you start to have what I call a little of creative awareness. And you start to realize, ah, I was caught. (coughs) I lost it. I was really caught in there, grasping in there, amplifying in there. And so you start to, in a way, look at it a little differently. And to me, this is a letting go because (coughs) for quite some time, we go through these ups and downs and we are so identified when we are in one of these being upset. We so believe the story and everything And we think it's so true. And it's always true. And nobody should question the trueness of it. Because it is so true. And this first letting go is starting to say, well, maybe it was not as true as I thought it was. Maybe it was a little more hmm, questionable. That's where the question comes in a bit. I had this experience very early on when I was in Korea. I was a nun, and because I was a Western nun, I was uh, time to time helping out with a guest and you know, telling them what was what about Buddhism. But, I mean, I had barely been a nun for a few months, so pff, what did I know about Buddhism, especially with all these lists? You know, the five of these, <laughs> the four of that. The, and I was kind of, you know. And so here I am trying to tell this person about the four noble truths. First one. Suffering, suffering, yes, yes, suffering. Next one. What's the next one? And then suddenly, I see this monk. He's pinching my persimmons. I pick this persimmon. They're mine now in my bucket. And he's going off with them. They're mine. So I jump on him. And I say, no way, these are my persimmon. You can't take them, they're mine. You know? So he kind of, okay, okay. You know? And then I go back to my guest. Second <laughs> truth. Craving. Yes, he remembered. Then cessation. And the path, got it, passed. Then they go, and then my friend said, another nun, she said, did you notice? I said, noticed what? (laughs) Well, you were a little upset. And then I realized I had been totally on automatic. And it's only by her telling me, did you notice? that I thought, that's true. I mean, I was totally caught in the second one. You know, craving, grasping, I was there. But I had not seen it, because then I had gone on automatic. And after that, I started to become more aware of that stage, where suddenly there is a little space, and you can see, hey, wait a minute, I was caught. And I think what is important to see with uh, creative awareness and that with it you have a different tone. And that's why I call it letting go. There is a tone of letting go because you don't go into the criticism. Wasn't I terrible? I am the most terrible person in the world. I can't even meditate. That's not what I mean by letting go. Letting go is seeing I was caught being aware I am not caught all the time. So when do I catch? Because that's part of the letting go, to see what is it that caused me to be caught. And then to start to see, and I think this is an important part of the letting go, is understanding the conditions. What were the conditions? What was the trigger? What, was, what were the contributing factor which made me catch in that way, which made me upset in that way? And so I would say that the, the, the first letting go, this after stage, in a way we start to look at our affliction in a different way. Instead of saying, I could not help it. This is something they often said in Korea. I could not help it. But this is fairly fatalistic. I could not help it. And it's very different to understanding one of the things they say in the Zen tradition, that afflictions are awakening. We're not going to learn letting go in paradise. We're going to learn letting go because we grasp at something. There is no point in letting go if you don't grasp. If you're in your paradise, awakening every, all the time, I mean, there is no need of letting go. But in a way, we let go because we were grasping. And I think there we start to understand as at stage a little that saying, affliction, our awakening, as a staff of awakening. And then we start, what I would say, this see and learn. Oh, seeing what was going on, learning from what happened, but not in a critical manner, but in a creative manner. That's when you start to have a little of that creativity within the awareness. Then you have the next one, and the next one I call during. And this, often you experience it after you practiced a little bit. And then you become mindful. And you think, you know, nowadays mindfulness is very popular, very popular. Everybody wants to be mindful. And you think, you know, mindfulness is magical. If I am mindful, everything will be okay. And this is one of the things I learned many years ago. I was in a train going somewhere with some friends, and nothing was happening. And I was so mindful. And it was also quite boring. <laughs> and that's when I realized mindfulness is not magic. It's mindfulness is not going to make you feel, you know, nothing is happening. Gosh, this is the most fantastic thing in the world. Gosh, you know, like on Amazon, I would give it five star plus, you know, (laughs) and tell everybody about, you know, this train journey. not. Nothing is happening. I mean, it's restful, but that's about it. So in a way, I think, and this is why you start to have the letting go, but that one, I would say, is one of the most challenging is the one I call during. When you are caught, you are in the middle of being caught in what I call one of the negative selfing patterning stuff. And for example, you let's say you're upset, and you're so upset, and you're so mindful that you're upset and it doesn't make a difference, you know? Because you think it should be magic. I'm mindful, it should stop. But it doesn't work that way. Because in a way we have to see there is a lot of power. Why do we react the way we react? Why do we become upset? Because there is a power of the reaction. And we generally upset for certain reasons. We don't just upset because nothing is going on, something is happening. So we react to it. And so there is quite a lot of power in that. And so a general feeling of mindfulness is not going to dissolve the power. But if the mindfulness becomes a little creative, then things can start to be a little different. And I had this experience, but you see, in order for the mindfulness to become creative, it has to be more than what I would call a general mindfulness. Like me and the blackboard, I am mindful and then bang, you know, on the foot. I had to be specifically mindful of the foot and my foot, not just I am mindful, I am aware. We have to be careful there. Mindfulness There is many different ways to be mindful in in a general way which can become a bit vague and then you don't see very clearly or in a specific way and then you might be able more to explore it. And so one day, many years ago, I had a little discussion with another Buddhist which became what we could say an argument. And she said, you, ne- you don't do it, you will never do it. And I said, but uh, this time I will do it, but I've not done it in the past. You will." And then we had to leave it because I-, I had to go and cook for a conference, so I had to kind of drop the argument. And so we kind of left, you know, with my mindful smile.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then...
0: I uh, go in the kitchen, and I have to cut these carrots. And then I'm cutting the carrots. And in the middle of it, I find myself, I see myself doing that. It's a bit dangerous with the carrots. So I was really in the middle of it. I was during it. And then I choose to use the creative awareness. In a very specific way. And so I went inside my body. I went, how does it feel to be upset? How does it feel right now in my body to be angry? So I went experiential inquiry. And my whole body was shaking. I was like that. And in that moment, I saw, I experienced that the suffering was caused by me. Nobody else was doing this to me. And in that moment of seeing, it went. But in order for this to work in that way, in a way, the power of the creative awareness needs to be as strong as the power of the habit. And so in a way, that's why we're sitting here. That's why we're doing the walking meditation, the sitting meditation, where we're cultivating meditation in this way. What we're doing is building the power of creative awareness so that we're not just mindful, but we have the power in that moment to be creatively mindful, to really go inside what's going on. But until there is enough power in the awareness, the letting go, when we see ourselves in the state of being upset or whatever it is, is to be aware of it and then to see how can I not magnify this? Because that's what the problem generally is a magnification. The problem is not with being upset, because you're upset because something happened. The problem is with the amplification, the grasping, the selfing, the identification, the story making, the reinforcing. And so, in a way, in that, the letting go in that during state is, in a way, being able to handle it. How does it feel to be sad? How does it feel to be angry? How does it feel to be jealous or envious or whatever it is? How does it feel? How can I be with it without increasing it? And to me, this is a letting go. If we can start to is instead of going in abstraction, because that's what we generally do. We go into the proliferation. It's always like this, or they're always like this, and we kind of go you know, in the abstraction of it. So we don't have to be with, you know, in a the pain of what's going on. And so in a way, the first letting go is, how can I be with this? Instead of, how can I get rid of this as fast as I can? which, if it's powerful, you might not be able to, unless you can really look deeply into it. How can I be with this? How can I bear it to be with this? And then, what is interesting is that sometimes we're so afraid of our feelings, sensations, thought, because we think they're going to, to be too much. <clears throat> But actually, if we, how does it feel to be afraid? How does it feel? And if we're not afraid of it, well, it's a funny feeling. You feel a little kind of shaky, a little. (laughs) But it comes, it stays a while, and if we don't feed it, then over time it will diminish. And so that's why I see the letting go of the during stage is a fact that actually things generally will last less long. And I think we really need to appreciate this letting go. Because often people will say about meditation, oh, my meditation is really not improving. I meditate for 10 years and I'm still distracted. It's not working. And then I say, but what about your life? And a lot of the time people say, oh, my life much better. <laughs> Why is it better? <laughs> and generally it's better because instead of being angry for a week, you're angry for a day. Instead of being afraid for two days, you're afraid for ten minutes. I mean, you still have the feeling, but it does not last so long. And I think this is an important part of letting go, to see that there is less intensity and also that it lasts less long. And so in a way, I would say this during is a bit equivalent to what Stephen talked about, the knowing fully, the first noble truth, the embracing of suffering. Then you have the next one, and this one is what I call the beginning, is now you start to understand that you're not always upset, fearful, anxious, whatever it is, but you start to know with creative awareness to see the trigger, to see the condition, to see the contributing factors. And then you start to do something. And this is why I talk about Creative Awareness or Creative Mindfulness. We have to see that the mindfulness we develop is not just so that we stare at reality. So then I, I go around like that, so, because I am mindful, you know, I stare. And often that's a feeling you get. People come back from a retreat. And then then their friend and family said, what happened? What's the matter with you? Why are you staring at me so? But to see that the mindfulness is actually for us, to it's more like a seeing, to see more clearly what's going on. Because if we see more clearly what's going on, we can do something about it. So that's why personally I talk about creativity. Because in a way what our habits, what the affliction are stopping, is our creative potential. And so in a way is to is to once you understand better, then you start to have more confidence in your creative potential, but you start to also activate it. But you need to activate it at the beginning because the habit is still powerful. So in a way, to me, the beginning stage is when you start to see yourself going down. Oh, if I continue here, I'm going to go to a painful place. I mean, a very uh, easy one is you are waiting. You're waiting for somebody. Nine o'clock, they're not here. Ten past nine. He or she does not love me. 9.20. Nobody loves me. (laughs) 9.30. I hate the world. (laughs) Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened there? Waiting is not easy, especially in the modern world. I know that when I lived in Korea, I had a great lesson in being, I mean, I am fairly fiery, and I can be impatient. So I know that habit. And in Korea, really, I learned. Because, you know, somebody told you, oh, yeah, I'll see you at 10 o'clock. You, if you're lucky, you might see them at 2. I mean, seemingly, they have much improved now. I mean, I think they've become modern. So now they're kind of on time. But before, when I was there 20, 30 years ago, I mean, it was really interesting. Their the, the experience of time was really loose. Really loose, But in the modern world now, time is money. You know, it's very interesting how we are with waiting. I am mindful. Yes, yes, it's okay. I'm mindful. I can wait. You know, I mean, on retreat, I wait all the time. I am mindful. And suddenly, (laughs) something takes you over. What I call the monster of impatience. It's kind of, ah, oh! and then you can't wait another second. You can't It's very interesting. So anyway, if you know, I mean, this is something I had to learn uh, with uh, traveling. You know, you, we travel a lot, so we wait a lot. And sometimes things don't go according to plan. And recently we went to Australia, and at the last minute in the airport, two hours to go, I realized we were going to go for eight hours, but EasyJet style. And I I had only gone Ryanair or EasyJet style for an hour, which generally is manageable. But I thought, seven hours, eight hours, EasyJet style, no film, no food, no this, no that. I thought, ooh, how am I going to be with that? Because I knew this was not the conditions which were easy for me. The contributing factors were heavy here. <laughs> so I thought, all right. And instead of worrying and kind of starting to fear the eight hours before getting there, I thought, preparation. So I got lots of magazines, lots of books. I can meditate. I can do this. I really prepared myself, actually. And then I got on the plane and then I did the different things I decided to do in these circumstances. And I was amazed. It went fine. Totally fine. But it went fine because of the preparation. So that then I could really be in the moment, I really could be with what was going on, instead of, if only there was this, and if only there was that, then it would be okay. Or, I made a mistake, I'm so terrible, how could I do this? No, it was just how I could be with it. And so, to me, this is in a way why it's so important to know ourselves. Not so that we can beat ourselves up, and be our worst critic, but to know, how do I work? How do I react? And how can I help myself? And I think this is a big part of creative awareness. And if we do this, what is very interesting here, at that stage of letting go, is that we start, you see, up to now we think that our patterns are so strong, That they're more powerful than us. And that we really can't help ourselves being the way we are. We really, we, we think we should improve and meditation should help us. But deep down there is this feeling, you know, this is so strong. It's bigger than me. It will always be there. And early in my marriage with Stephen, he would go away. And within two days, I was in a terrible funk. And he would phone the third day and I was really nasty on the phone, you know, really unpleasant. It happened once, it happened twice. I thought, wait a minute, this is painful, this is not helpful. Then the third time, preparation. Okay, what happens? So first day I was okay, second day I was okay, and the third day I saw the thought I saw the trigger thought. It was about three words. And as soon as that thought was in my mind, that was it. I was going to go into this poor me, poor me, da da da, storyline. And the third time when I saw it really so clearly, I did what I call creative meditative distraction. I went for a walk, I read a book, and I only need to do this twice. And this trigger thought totally disappeared forever after. And now I can't even remember what it was. But then it was so painful. It seems so powerful. So that's what is interesting at this beginning stage. The power of the creative awareness starts to become actually as strong as the power of the habit. And if you don't identify with the habit, actually, it's a castle made of card. It's actually a mirage. It's not as big as we thought it was. And then we have the last, the fourth stage of letting go. And this is what I call before. And this one is very interesting, that one. So now you really know the pattern, the habit, you really know it all. Plus the power of creative awareness is more powerful than the habit. So it can kick in more easily in your daily life. And so something happened, the condition happened for you to generally go into a pattern. I had a pattern from a very young age, from the age of like 10, that if somebody hurt me, I would not look at them, I would not talk to them for weeks. I would sulk, basically. But I would ignore them. And even after I had done meditation for 10 years in Korea, I still had it. And then I lived in a community. And I would get upset by people often. And then often I would just, you know, not talk to them, look at them for days. And then one day it happened. Somebody said something and I was hurt. And then the next morning, the person was in the kitchen and I was going to make breakfast. And I could feel the pattern going to arise like I was going to shut off. But before it, it started, I thought, wait a minute, maybe I can do something different. Right here, right now, this moment, maybe I can do something different. And at that moment, there was an incredible fear. How can I do something different? For the last 35 years, I've never done anything different. And this is why we don't change. We prefer the pain of the known than the non-pain of the unknown. But because there was power in the creative awareness, I thought, let's try it once. Once, let's try something different. So, I just turned to the lady and I smiled. And then... I felt such ease. It was like my whole body and mind. It was like an incredible peace. An incredible ease. And I thought, but why did not I do this before? It's so easy. Why? Why? And what was interesting is that after that, I never, I have never done it again. But the reason I have not done it is actually because of compassion. Because at that moment, and to me this is in a way the final letting go, because at that moment I realized how painful the pattern had been for myself and for others. I kind of like was doing it to protect myself, but at the same time it was really painful for others, and also painful for me. And because of that, I could never consider doing it again. Because then I would really know the pain. The pain for myself, the pain for others. And that's why I think in a way that first noble truth, you could say is so true, insofar that if we really know suffering, that actually we feel the pain of it, arise a compassion for it, and then you can't but let go. So these are the four stages of letting go. And then I wanted to make the link between that and something they talk in the Zen tradition, especially in the monastery where I was, which is called Songwangsa, which is in the Southwest Korea. And in Song Wangsa, because the founder was uh, Master Chinun, Bojo Wuxan, he followed the, you could say, the tradition of what is known as sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. And in a way, I think sudden awakening for me, often you see, I know, sudden awakening, often people talk about enlightenment, you know, like with a big E as big as his room, and as soon as you got it, you're about, you know, floating about that high in the room, and then you all lit like a Christmas tree, and that's kind of awakening. And then we sit in meditation waiting, waiting to lift off, generally. We lift off, the light comes on, you know, and my light is bigger than yours, type of thing. But I think if we look more in terms of, you know, as this master uh, devised or suggested, this sudden awakening, followed by gradual practice, which then is followed by more sudden awakening, followed by more practice, then we can see that all these moments of letting go are moments of sudden awakening. And I think the idea of sudden awakening is actually the idea that at any given moment something can happen. But possibly not to think so much in terms of lifting off and lighting up, but more that at any given moment I can ungrasp, I can release, I can be aware in a clear way I can see something I never saw before. And so, in a way, to see that we have these moments, that they be on retreat, that they be in daily life, when suddenly either we experience ourselves differently or in daily life we respond differently. We feel more spacious, we feel more open, we feel more creative. We feel more patient. And so in the moment of it, it feels amazing because it's different. But then the moment passes. And that's why this sudden awakening is in a way telling us that yes, at any moment we can ungrasp. But the next moment we can grasp again. So in a way what we're trying to do is in a way allow ourselves cultivate condition so that there is more ungrasping moment and possibly they might last a little longer. But to see that we need to practice gradually too, and we cannot just wait all the time for this special moment, but that the special moment is together with this gradual practice. And so I wanted to read... These two uh, quotes are from the Korean tradition about that. The principle underlying sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, is that even if the sun suddenly arises, frost and dew are slow in melting away. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, it is said. When the first aspiration to enlightenment arises, suddenly one attains perfect awakening. And after ascending to this level, one continues to develop through step-by-step cultivation. And so the idea is that the sun suddenly arises, but because the sun has arisen, doesn't mean that everything is dried. I mean, it will take some time from the dew and everything to... I mean, this is one of the things I love to take pictures of. Dew. You know? So whenever there is dew on the grass and there is a sun, I am out there. And, you know, taking this macro photo of uh, little drops on uh, grasses. And I'm very aware that it can go very fast. One moment, everything looked like kind of uh, all these jewels shimmering in the grass. And then two hours later, it's finished. But it takes that time for it to dry. And so it's the same. It says that in a way, the sudden awakening is actually in a way to build our faith. That I can do this. I can experience peace. I can experience clarity. And then he gives you the confidence to actually continue to the gradual cultivation. And then again, you can have a moment of opening, of clarity. Then the other one, which is by uh, Master Bojo. What is gradual cultivation? Even if one realizes that one's true nature is not different from that of the Buddha, it is difficult to remove deeply rooted habits suddenly. Therefore, one needs to continue to cultivate while relying on one's awakening. Through this gradual maturation, one's efforts reach completion. Thus one steadily develops The embryo of awakening and after a long time becomes a sage. It can be compared to an infant who is no different than adults in its senses and organs but immature in its development and therefore becomes an adult only after a certain duration of time. In a way they talk sometime about impatient mind. In the Korean tradition, I say, be careful of impatient mind. Like wanted to be awakened yesterday. You know? Like in a way, you need to have the energy to have the faith. I can do this. I have the same ability as a Buddha. I have the same potential as a Buddha. And I can see, I have moment. But then that because there is all these habits, i have to work on them one at a time. Slowly, slowly, I have to work on the habits. And then there is another thing that they say in Korean Zen. And what they say is, do not just wait on purpose for awakening. And what does that mean? And I said, if one regards oneself as a deluded being and wait for awakening on purpose, this is the same as looking for awakening with a deluded mind. And it says, do not wait for enlightenment deliberately because if you wait for awakening with such a calculating mind, one will never attain awakening and only add So what is it saying there? This is tricky. Because you're sitting in meditation not because you have nothing better to do. I could have taken golf or I could have gone, I don't know, to Turkey or whatever it is. So you're doing this because you have a reason. You hope for wisdom. You hope for compassion. You hope for awakening. But if you're sitting there Because often I feel that's what we do. We sit there. Okay. The breath. What is this? What is this? Listening. But we're not just listening. We're kind of waiting for something special to happen. So you're kind of waiting. Waiting. First day, nothing. (laughs) Lots of pain. That's not special. Second day, nothing. Nothing. but (laughs) (laughs) But it's gone. And I think, of course, we hear so much about these meditative experiences and whatnot. And they do happen, of course they do happen. But we have to be careful to think this is what this is about. I think the path is about letting go. And the experiences, I would say, is a byproduct. The goal of the path is not the experiences. The goal of the path is letting go. And why the letting go? So that we can more likely to manifest wisdom and compassion. And I'll talk more about this in today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? Um, I'm just curious, what does an argument at home with Stephen look like? We have a very different personality. So, (laughs) we have... (laughs) We have, a, we don't have like a, uh, an argument as such, you know. One might be in a mood, the other one might be in a mood, but we might not be in the same mood at the same time. <laughs> so we generally balance each other, each other out. It's rare. It's rare when. Uh, it's extremely rare. I can't remember. Uh, having an argument. I can remember him being in a mood or me being in a mood, <laughs> but generally not about the same thing. And so generally the other one look, huh? And then generally it passes. He's a, I mean, Stephen had one mood recently. <laughs> I think it was yesterday or the day before. And he was very creatively aware this time. It was very good. Because he said, it's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> and he could see uh, it was not my fault. And, uh, so, but it really generally doesn't last very long. It doesn't last very long. But recently, recently, I had what I would call a sobering experience. Because something happened with my mother. And it was very interesting, because something which was very happy suddenly turned into unhappy for myself and for her. And that very strangely put, it, put me in a bad mood. And what was interesting is that then that sipped into everything. And this had not happened to me for years. And suddenly after a few hours of it, I thought, wait a minute. This is familiar. I used to feel this like 15 years ago. What's going on here? It was very strange. It was interesting to see how, and then I could retrace it with creative awareness. I kind of, I retraced it and I could see what happened. But then it really showed me how you can have a problem with something which gives rise to negative feeling tone. And if you're not careful with it, if you have no awareness of it, then it colors everything. You know, like, nobody has done nothing to you, but then you start to feel everybody has done something to you. It was very interesting to see that. And then, as soon as I saw it, then, in a way, I kind of could replace it where it was, and then it kind of went. So I think, that's why I'm saying, you know, afflictions are awakening, Each time we get caught, you know, it's an opportunity to see what happens. Because you might not be caught for a long time. Then suddenly the condition arrives. And then instead of feeling, I am a terrible teacher, I'm not mindful, what happened? How can I be with this? Yes. Yes about enlightenment what I noticed is when people say like oh I want to be enlightened oh I shouldn't think that but I think a pit is when you think you're not enlightened already you assume you're implicitly telling yourself I am not good enough and I think enlightenment is all about accepting yourself so I know what your comments were but once I sat down I said I am already enlightened I'm not going to bother with that and I felt so happy suddenly (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I think this, in a way, is what the, the, the last point I was making was about. Don't wait for enlightenment on purpose. Because, as he said, he basically is saying, you're not enlightened now. And then you think there is this huge distance between you and enlightenment. And so, of course, I mean, this is one of the foundations of Zen, is to say, you are awakened already. But what is interesting in that in the main text, which says that, it says, Buddhas, sentient beings are Buddhas, and Buddhas are sentient beings. Which means that, yes, you're awakened, but are you manifesting awakening or not? And so sometimes we do manifest awakening, and sometimes we don't. And I think that's why, in a way, the, the sobering effect, that idea, that's why the idea of sudden awakening, meaning that you know that you can be awakened, you can be awakened now, and at the same time you know that there are patterns which kind of in a way stops you at times too show to manifest your awakening. And I think that's why this sudden awakening and gradual cultivation I think are very important together, how they complement each other, because then there is the place for both dimension. And then our practice is like at the crossroad. I see our practice just being at the crossroad of what I call the depth dimension of sudden awakening, and then the width dimension of gradual cultivation. and you seem to have a lot of self-compassion and not giving to self-criticism. Is that something that you want like that? (laughs) Or how do you do that? No, no, no. I was... I mean, as a... a, Well, as a young child, I was quite go-getting. And at the same time, I was also not feeling so good about myself. Uh, When I was a young child or when I was a young adult, I was not... (laughs) feeling always very happy about myself. And to me, what uh, I could see, because I was very idealistic, and at the same time I could see that I could tell myself, you know, don't be egoist and nothing happened, don't be jealous, nothing happened when I was 18. And so I was very aware of the problem. I was very aware of the problem and I felt really stuck, you know, that I kept, making the same mistake, and I kept, you know, being unhappy. And the the final time when it really hit me was when I was in, uh, I was about 22, 21, just before I went to Korea, and I was on a bus in Nepal, and I was uh, going from Pokhara to Kathmandu, which is one of the most beautiful ride you could ever imagine, all the Himalayas around you, and the whole time I was sitting on the bus with this magnificent countryside, I was thinking about money, I was thinking I don't have enough money, this is terrible, I was, I was feeling awful, just being so obsessed, worrying about money. And at the end of the trip, I realized it. I thought I need to do something about my mind. <laughs> so I was aware of it, but I thought I could do something about it. Let's say, and I think this is what is important: to see that because we aspire, I mean, generally we aspire to be wise, to be compassionate, and then when we faced with Our mind being kind of weird or our body or our feelings being like, you know, they don't feel awake, even though we're supposed to be awake and it really doesn't feel awakened every day, you know, and you feel like, you know, and what you think, it's really, either it's minor or either it's catastrophizing, either it's, you know, all kind of stuff. And and I think it's kind of in a way... To me, the start of the meditation path is seeing that. One has to see that. But to see it in, okay, that's a situation. But what can I do about it? Because if we identify with it totally, I am so awful, I will always be so awful, then we're really stuck. But to me what I found beautiful, and that's why I love reading uh, life story of people, is to see you have people who really have terrible situations, that it be they're schizophrenic, or that it be that they're uh, disabled, or whatever it is. And they have very difficult circumstances in many different ways. And what I see time and again is their creative potential, saying, wait a minute, I am not just this. I am not just my thought. I am not just my physical state. I can be more than that. And to me, that's why, that's why in a way, I, I believe, I trust in meditation for myself and others. Because there is this creative potential in all of us, even in the most difficult situation there is this wonderful book. I mean, it's very sad too, but uh, uh, written by an African-American in America. And it's called Convicted in the Womb. And basically explain the situation of African-American male living in the ghetto and so forth, and that he was like that. So he was raised in a very terrible situation, really, really, really bad. And, of course, he beat people up He ended up in jail, and he beat people in jail and ended up in confinement. So you have this fellow who has barely been to school, but not very much, not at all socialized or anything. Think the only solution to anything is beating people up, beating stronger than others so they don't beat him up. So you would think this guy is hopeless. Most people would think that. But what is very interesting, he is in solitary confinement, on his own, nothing to do. But the table is, there is one foot of the table is too short. So somebody put a book of Shakespeare works. He has nothing to do, so he reads Shakespeare work for a week or two. And this changed his life. And he turned his life around, go to university, and become a peace advocate. And that, to me, made me believe in the creative potential. So, I think I'll finish here.